Well, this time, we're not in a loud conference hall like OSCON. I think the audio quality came out okay on our last one. Did, did, you, uh, did you have a little listen to it? What did you think? I, I actually haven't uh, gone back and listened to it quite yet, but mm. uh, it's, on, it's on my list. I just got back from vacation, so I did no tech, like anything. Oh, yeah? I don't yeah. even think I took my laptop out, well, that which is amazing. Well, so you should give me some tips, right? <laughs> because, uh, uh, what is this? That, uh, next week I'm going on vacation. So, like, what uh, I was thinking about, I mean, I'm pretty sure I won't take a laptop. That, that, I think that, that makes sense, and I think it'll be fine. But, like, you got any other, any other good tips? Because I have to tell you, I always have a problem, like, mentally going on vacation, and now that I have a family... Like you just gotta like you have to do that or you ruin everyone's good time. So like what uh what, right. what what what's your maybe you don't have this problem but like what's your what's your tip for forgetting that you have a job? Well, I uh, I don't know that I have too many tips other than to just make sure that you have a good enough time that you don't think about it, um, or go to a beautiful place. Mm. Like we went to the beach; it was pretty nice. Um, yeah. I did bring my laptop with me because uh, just in case, but I ended up not actually wanting to um, to to work, which yeah. is nice. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm um, always I'm always kind of fearful. Like we might need our laptop to do some vacation related thing, but I think basically, if you got a good iPhone, I don't know if Android nowadays, like you're pretty much fine. Like worst case scenario, you have to print something, but. I think you'll be right. okay. You go to a Kinko's maybe? I don't know. And just email a PDF to him. Yeah, or if you have a tablet, just like open it in a tab and leave it open. Oh, yes. I don't know why you would need to print anything anymore. I, it's like really a crazy world. We don't have to print things. Like yeah. I see people in the uh, line to get on the airplane and they have like a printed boarding pass. And I'm yeah. Like, Who does that? Yeah. Much yeah. less the people that actually print it at the kiosk, right? Yeah. I mean, the world has changed. Yeah, I, I only I, I agree with you. I only do that in weird circumstances. But yeah, there is yeah. there's a lot of people with the uh, the printed boarding passes. It, it is it is kind of strange. Yeah. Hmm. You know, I was thinking the other day, like I I, I had this crisis. This is the second piece of advice before we get to our our nominal topic. But I was thinking, like, if I if I lost my laptop and my phone, how would I recover all my stuff? Cause like I use like a password manager, right? And so mm -hmm. like I don't, I don't think I, I, I only know the password for my password manager, <laughs> and I, and and I guess to log into my laptop, right? But like I don't right. know any other passwords. So like, w uh, and and I wouldn't have my two-factor authentication thing, right? So like I don't know what I would do. Like if I had to just get up and running. Like I think, anyways. And then the other scenario, of course, is like, well, what if I died? And and then like, you know, my wife has to like do stuff with with all my online accounts. So I I, I don't know if I still solve that problem. But other than printing out like some sheet that has some master password on it and putting it somewhere quote unquote safe, I'm not really sure what you do. Yeah, I don't know. I don't have a good answer. I mean, maybe maybe you put it uh, in like a. Yeah, safety deposit box somewhere or something. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I I don't have a good answer for that one. I mean, you know, we use tablet for the kids, and so like a lot of times, whatever you need on vacation, you can do with that. But uh, in terms of like what happens if I lose 
uh, my electronics. I mean, I back things up to the cloud, but as you said, uh, password manager is yeah. good for security, but puts you in a bit of a, can put you in a bit of a bind, right? Yeah. I mean, the only thing that I figured out is, is I don't know if this is, this is same, but I think, let me see if, if I got this figured out correctly. I, I guess there's only one password you would actually need to know and be normal. And like I, I signed up for the, uh, the online version of one password. And so you can log into it online. And if you make that password kind of normal and normal and safe, but like that's, that's the only password you should have to know. And then, and then, because right. I, I was thinking like, like for me, I think basically I would need my password manager and Dropbox is basically where most of my stuff is. Right. And it would allow me to reassemble things. So if I knew those two passwords, I'd be okay. But then I realized I just need the one password, not, I guess it right. is one password. <laughs> um, right. And, and now because they have an online thing, like you can just, you have to pay for it. But I think that solves the problem. But still, then you got to like have a good enough password for that, but that you can like tell your emergency contact, I guess, and uh, have them know it. I don't know. Very troubling. We need to figure something out with that. There should be like a bureau that like, uh, you know, grants you your master password. We should set that up. Beats me. Maybe the local police. That won't work either. But, well. Yeah, I, there, there's an answer there somewhere. Somebody's got a startup idea in there somewhere, which is, um, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a big challenge. I mean, for us, I think the issue is maybe not um, – not as big because I mean, what are the odds that we only have one computer working in technology? Mm, yeah, but um, you know, certainly for I think folks who don't work in tech, the odds that they only have like one laptop is pretty high. Yeah, and so you know, what happens if they lose that? Like that would be a terrible, catastrophic thing. Yeah, maybe um, we should have just all. But, we, you should set our our Google password to something easy to remember and just use Chromebooks. That's that'll solve the problem, right? There you go. I mean, it, <laughs> people are using like I, you know, like iCloud. If you have an i Apple device, more. And so I, you know, the first time going through that experience of switching devices and just like entering my password and then all my stuff magically appeared was pretty amazing. Mm. Um, That's true. So I think. So I think Apple's done an interesting thing, which is. Um, they kind of took the choice away from you to some degree. Like there's sane defaults for doing the right thing and you kind of have to turn it off if you don't want to pay them money. Um, but they make it so cheap. It's like, why wouldn't you? Yeah. So that's been kind of nice. And then I think Google's got a similar setup, but, uh, but yeah, so there's lots of cool online, online backup services now. But, um, again, like how do you deal with, how do I grant access to the right people to the right stuff at the right time? Yeah. 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 I think, and, and then they have another thing just, I guess, to close out the topic in one password, you can like share your password vault with someone and then that. So I've been trying that scheme, but I still need to, you know, back to the, uh, the, the, the normal topic you and I talk about. Then there's a cultural problem of like, I've been working for several years to get my wife won over to this concept. And like every time, you know, she's always just like, it's too difficult to, to deal with, which it is like having sane password stuff is like, uh, onerous. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. so and and yeah. and then and then there's the problem of like me trusting her with access if if I don't think she has good enough password hygiene 
right? And, and uh, because of that, so like it's this weird, uh, it's this weird game of chicken where we've got to like synchronize the risks of me being my own island of password, and then waiting, waiting for for her to uh, be okay with like more difficult password stuff. Like I don't think I've even like tried to get her to sign up for two FA stuff because that seems like, oh, that's that's even so annoying. Like I. I now, nowadays, I use like Authy for a lot of that, and then like I always need to have a password for my password manager with it or whatever, which is just seems ridiculous. But I don't know what else to do. Uh, somebody's got an. I mean, I think Facebook and Google are trying to solve it with their own federated identity services, right? Which we're seeing more and more. But um, I, yeah, I don't know the answer. It's mm. uh, it's a mess. It well, will hopefully get better over time. So There's some, definitely an area of opportunity. <laughs> so something I think you do have answers for we, I, that I thought we'd talk about today is like uh, is like pipelines. That's what the cool kids call it nowadays, right? Pipelines, not your uh, not your CI process or whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I guess pipelines. Pipelines is a pretty cool name. It's a pretty cool visual. Yeah. Uh, you know, I guess. At one point, we were calling it infrastructure as code, mm. um, which I don't know if those. Two were necessarily the same thing, but it it feels like they're pretty similar. Um, and uh, and yeah, so pipelines, CI/CD is a term we hear a lot, or a lot of people ubiquitously just say Jenkins. Yeah, and yeah. Mean no, exactly. Some CI tool, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I was thinking, it's like, this... it's like rollerblades. <laughs> people would say rollerblades when they meant you know inline skates or whatever the the uncool marketing name was. Now, now are, cooler. Are, are those two different things, inline skate and rollerblades, are they the same thing? I think they're the same thing, aren't they? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I'm I thought. Dating, I'm probably dating myself a little bit. No, I, 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 yeah. see, I see those every now and then. It's always fun to see them. You can tell, yeah, I think anyone who's uh, inline skating slash rollerblading nowadays is a huge fan of it. Like, they've stuck with it. Yeah. And, and they're, uh, they're always, they're always uh, you know, here in Austin... We have a uh, uh, is it, it latent? We had let's call it an aged hippie subculture, right? Like a bunch of people who came here in like the seventies and uh, during like the psychedelic cowboy era, and they're kind of like they have this very hippie approach to stuff. And so, and then we also have like the biking culture and the outdoor activity people. And so every now and then you'll see this fusion of like this kind of like really fit, well tanned, like long ponytail gray-haired hippie person like bicycling <laughs> or rollerblading and like the way they've melded these the fitness culture and the the hippie culture together is they have first the fitness part where like you want to be healthy and, and doing these outdoor activities things and then the venn diagram with hippie culture is like this appreciation for the outdoors and like this this almost like religious reverence for outdoorsness and then the part that makes it entertaining is like the hippie part, which is basically like this uh, accidental or on purpose irreverence for what people think about you. So they're just like, <laughs> they're just like rollerblades, no problem, man. <laughs> and 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 they'll just be rollerblading around in their their hippie glory, and it's it'll it'll it's always good stuff to see. Yeah, why wouldn't you? Yeah. And why wouldn't you build pipelines? For yeah. Your- infrastructure so yeah so i was thinking this topic for for a couple of reasons one i think uh i think in like my normal like spiel of tough stuff i talk about like i was realizing this last week when i was putting together another uh another round of my my little uh 
stump speech as it were is like i don't really say that much about like pipelines i basically just say like you should have one and then i move on right like i don't really talk about like how you think about it and and how you uh like what the lay of the land is or or uh, you know the issues that you have introducing it into to an organization and how you get over those and and then the second thing um this is a couple weeks ago but i was talking to a um what was he he was i guess the head of like enterprise architecture at like a a, a company we were talking with and we had this interesting side conversation during a break in our series of meetings about like um like what do you do for governance in in like this cloud native whatever devopsy way of existing and and he didn't actually use the word governance he was very jokey and shrewd about it but he was like you know you have like policies you want to enforce <laughs> that you need to and like things that you want to make sure happens you know like what enterprise architects are supposed to do um and like you know my only answer to him was like well like uh when it comes to governance like it seems like there's a few like choke points you have to exert control and one of them is like you have like whatever platform you're deploying to like you just don't allow some things to happen right like you enforce uh you know i can't at the moment i can't think of an example off the top of my head but you enforce this way of operating uh instead of something else like here's a Chizo example, like you can't use local file systems. So you don't allow that to happen. Or you can only like, if you've got all these different services, you can't really like you, you shut off in the container or however you're doing it, accessing these other services that you don't want people to access. So you can kind of like enforce this stuff at, at the platform layer. And then, and then, you know, there, and then there's the, uh, there's like the cultural stuff of just like people stuff, which is, the most difficult answer <laughs> just like put it put in place the management hierarchy and the, the culture that you have on teams to make sure they're doing the right thing as it were and then and then it seems like finally like getting to the the thing is like well you also have a pipeline which like you just can't get your code through the pipeline unless you do things like make sure you pass all the tests or that you have this type of code hygiene or that you uh you know you've got to be following this governance or policy so you're essentially like automating a tremendous across all these, except the culture thing across the two technical and you're automating in a lot of governance. But anyhow, like all of that has made me realize that like, I don't really have a lot of like uh good jibber jabber when it comes to like how you use pipelines for all that stuff. And it occurred to me that you probably have some thoughts on it. So we should talk about that. Yeah. Um, so we, uh, there are a lot of benefits in terms of governance and I think, Governance is uh, kind of a dirty word with the new cool hip kids because, I mean, let's be honest, in the past when we referred to governance, we usually meant governance by committee. Yeah. Um, but but that's uh, not necessarily what we're talking about here, which is we want to just have some assurance that we're conforming to some set of standards. Um, and a lot of, uh, especially from an audit perspective, um, what the auditors are looking for is really just traceability. How do I know that, you know, uh, how do I know each person that touched, um, you know, the code in the process of getting into production? And um, how do I know, you know, that the acceptance tests passed? How do I know that, um, you know, that this set of features is tied to a release? Um how do I know that the change record that was created is also tied to that release? So 
what's uh, always created a challenge for us in governance <clears throat> has been that we have all kinds of disparate systems that capture small microcosms of metadata about the deployment process from the beginning to the end. So if like, um, we have like Jira or Pivotal Tracker for some kind of uh, tracking of, of tickets. And then, you know, maybe there's like a service now or remedy or, or something where change management lives um, and like your typical ITSM processes. And then you have, you know, whatever system actually does automation um, of the deployment itself, or God forbid, a human being who's handcrafting, you know, like RPMs that they're just <laughs> right. install in a box. Um, and so in the past, like we've had to put a lot of effort into kind of bringing these things together because uh, there is no underlying system to kind of do that. But uh, when it comes to pipelines, as it turns out, like Jenkins or, or um, you know, or GoCD or Concourse, uh, these tools are or can be that common thread that ties all of these things together so that when I do um, commit something to GitHub, I have traceability of what that change was and who did it. And then that triggers uh, through the CI system uh, the next step in the process. And it enforces a few things um, to be done very predictably and consistency and consistently, which is an auditor's dream which is you know that the flow is always the same from commit uh, through the testing environments and to production. Um, and then you also know the different pieces of data that the deployment pipeline or workflow sees to know that it's okay to go on to the next step. And so you really um, end up in this place where you're producing all of these really fantastic artifacts out of these disparate systems and tying them together in potentially one place and being able to hand uh, that to uh, somebody who's over audit auditing or governance and be able to say, hey, look at look at what we have here. This is um, true traceability and end, true accountability and end. Um, and it really gives you a much more transparent uh, and responsible view than you've than you've ever had before. But also a view that's more dynamic uh, to change. Um, uh, but hopefully, you know, it doesn't change so often once it's fully baked. Yeah, I, I mean, it seems like it seems like uh, uh, a metaphor for for like a pipeline is it's I don't know, it's sort of like a compiler <laughs> to some extent. Now, it's 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 like a more forgiving compiler in the sense of what you're talking about that it's uh, more malleable. Like compilers don't often change that much, I guess, unless you write your own compiler. <laughs> but, you know, a compiler is very, uh, well, you would hope very deterministic, right? It's just like, these are the hundreds of rules that must be followed in order for this code to run. And so now you pass all those rules, I can convert your code into something that's executable. And, you know, I guess people would like, I mean, I just have to imagine that a pipeline, I guess you could make it like, pretty much deterministic but i think that might be trading a little too much like you want to be able to go in there and, and change things around and i don't know it just seems like too complicated of a problem to be it like exactly like a compiler but it does get to that thing that that you hear a lot like in reference to uh i think like a pipeline is like it's it's a it's a type of trust building that you have like you put a lot of trust into the pipeline that it's verifying that this this code is good and that it's a good idea to to uh, to deploy it essentially. So you can and that's where you can start having it essentially gate 
uh, a release that you have, and it gets back again, as we were talking about earlier, to like that's a form of of governance that that you can use to enforce it. And um, so, as you were alluding to at the beginning, like yeah, I I think I think one another good place to start is like uh, to put it in in a, a uh, uh, intentionally ignorant, snarky way. Like, so doesn't Jenkins just do all of that? <laughs> like. Like, like where, cause Jenkins is like, I feel like it's the, uh, well, it used to be called Hudson before, uh, our friends at Oracle decided to encourage a fork of it. But like, that seems like it was kind of like the first major, like it was the critical thing historically that kicked off a lot of continuous integration as being standardized and accessible from everyone. And so like, it'd be interesting to know, like, in your opinion, like how much does it do or not do? Like, does it solve all your problems or not? Or how does it fit into the grand scheme of putting all this into practice? Yeah, so I think of CI systems as a bit of like workflow orchestration, basically. So it really ties together different components. The CI system itself doesn't really um, determine whether something is green or red. It uses other pieces of data provided by other systems to determine if things are green or red. And so um, I think, you know, that part of it is important in knowing kind of what the tool does. So the tool um, really just gives you an ability to create like steps and flows. um, And those steps can be uh, executed in parallel or in series. Um, You can, flow things from from one step to another um, and you have this somewhat logical progression or stepping through or a recipe so to speak of how to take something into production and so a lot of the work is actually in the things that your ci pipeline is talking to and using um uh, concourse might call them resources but um you know this idea of like I'll get uh, one of my recent examples that I think about a lot is security. So there's a lot of great tools coming out of this security space that allow you to do like automated scanning for license types or automated scanning for vulnerabilities as your code passes through its pipeline. And um, as we've tried to take the tools we have traditionally been using and plug them into that pipeline. In some cases, we can do that, but what challenges arise uh, that come to light very quickly is we all of a sudden realize that a lot of the human work that we were doing was somebody looking through the results of these scans and determining you know, whether the reds and yellows actually were red and yellow. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, how useful the error message was to actually go do a thing. Yeah. I, so, I, I think that's, that's, uh, that's always a, uh, I, I don't know what in, in the, as you're exiting the trough of disillusionment of any technology cycle. Uh, and I find people don't like admit this as much as, as they should, but like uh, there's always this moment when you have to be like, Oh, at one point, the way we solved this problem was pretty awesome, but now is pretty shitty, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> like, and and I, I remember you would see this in systems management a lot, right? The, I, I forget all the phrases for it. It's been so long, but, you know, they would be just like alert fatigue or whatever. And, and it was essentially like, yeah, we just, everything's always yellow or red, but only like 1% of that really matters, right? And, and like, 
which means that your stuff is pretty shitty, <laughs> right? Like, like you have it for whatever reason, like not, you know, doing any blame, but like the, 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 the previous generation of how you're solving the problem is no longer as good as it should be. And, uh, you know, to your point, like a lot, a lot of what I think we do in, in, um, nowadays in our, uh, I don't know what to call it anymore. Our DevOpsy kind of world is basically like, oh, we have better ways of solving that problem now. So you don't do the shitty way anymore. Yeah, so we have better tools, and we have. I think a trend that we see in the modern tool sets is that um, they're more API driven. So you can do more things through calling APIs than you can do previously. You'd have to do you know a lot more GUI work, which GUIs are still important because they sell software, but they're mostly important for that reason at this point. And then uh, the other piece is that, uh, more and more we're seeing output from the tools be able to be digested by automation and software and it being built in such a way that 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 is the intent intent isn't that a human would read the output but the intent is that you would have a script or a program or a pipeline read that output and do something useful with it and so you see a lot more programs um, outputting their you know results in json or um, even in XML, if it's a little bit more dated, um, or uh, you know, we've seen this like trend towards YAML, like everything's a YAML file is kind of the joke. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's been this interesting transition where we're seeing a lot of um, a lot of folks who've been in in established fields like security and enterprise monitoring and other places for a long time. Um, start to feel their own disruption as uh, this DevOps movement kind of yearns for very repeatable, predictable um, processes that can be codified. And uh, so that's that's a lot of the, the big challenge when you're building these pipelines, especially long, big, complex pipelines uh, that deploy things like platforms. So you have a lot of moving parts, a lot of moving pieces, and Many of them, in in some cases, are built by different vendors um, and weren't necessarily intended to interoperate or be automated. Uh, and so, in some, some cases, you're building your own automation shim around a thing in order for you to be able to put it in the pipeline, um, which is, uh, you know, which is basically where the work is. Um, it's that, and then. Things like, should I automatically move on to the next step or not? Mm. Um, so, so like Utopia is um, an update from the vendor comes out and I automatically grab it and I push it all the way through the pipeline and it goes into, you know, like a sandbox environment for validation. I have a whole bunch of suite of tests that run against it. They're all green. And then, you know, maybe my... Maybe it goes under a pre-production environment, kind of the same thing, maybe a larger set of tests, and then on to production without a human touching it. Well, as it turns out, um, a lot of software vendors uh, don't make the upgrade process for their software very repeatable uh, and very predictable. And so it can be very hard to do because uh, along with the upgrade may come a readme document that says, hey, for this upgrade, you need to do you know, these services in this order if there's multiple services or it needs to be patched in this way or 
you need to do um, these five steps that involve restarting various things. And so um, forcing yourself through the process of developing the pipeline does a few things. One is it, it really highlights that pain and brings it forward, uh, which is great for going and um, collaborating with your vendors on how to make those processes better, more friendly, and easier to automate. Um, and then, uh, you know, it also helps you understand where people were applying manual effort uh, that is easy to not realize because it's just part of the daily routine. Um, and it's very easy to kind of get in this process of doing the same five things over and over again, not realizing that uh, actually you're spending quite a lot of human effort doing something that should be automated away. Uh, and so I, I, I think it's a very useful exercise. We ended up uh, building pipelines around Cloud Foundry because with the number of people we had on the platform engineering team, it was the only way um, that we could uh, do it. Uh, we just saw the amount of overhead to do a manual deployment and considering the number of environments we were needing to manage, it just wasn't going to be possible to, to deal with that level of scale with human beings. And so it was basically our only option. Um, our back was against the wall. But we got all kinds of additional benefits out of going through that work, which is not only were we able to scale, uh, when it came to auditability, uh, it put us in a much better place in terms of talking to the audit and risk folks. It gives us a lot of opportunity to inject uh, security checks as we make those more sophisticated and advanced. Um, and it allows us to think about uh, new features, functions, and capabilities that we're adding around the platform in a different way. And one of the first questions that we ask is now is how easy is this to automate? How easy is it for us to codify our configurations? And how easy is it for us to codify our uh, infrastructure deployment to support this service? Yeah, there's, there's uh, uh, well, um, among many interesting things you're just saying, there's one that... Uh... I don't know, reoccurs over and over again uh, in, in all this stuff, which is, um, uh, well, to put it in, in this in this thing is like, if, if, if you want your code to be uh, in, in a pipeline, it needs to be pipelineable, <laughs> right? Like you need to be yeah. able to automate it to some extent. So there's almost, uh, what's it called? Like backflow. We have to install these things on our outdoor faucet so that like the outside water doesn't go into the city water supply or something. But like, there's almost like this, I guess, it was it was originally called a leaky abstraction there's this this leakiness of like from unit testing to pipelines where it's sort of like it starts to to a small hopefully small extent influence what your code ends up looking like um and and as you're saying like especially when it comes to sourcing third-party software which you don't really have control over that can be especially annoying <laughs> like like if if the third-party software you have isn't automatable so i mean that seems like one of the one of the main uh hurdles to get over if you will which which is always uh i mean i don't know there's the whole 12 factor thing which is like all that wonderful stuff we told you about deploying every day well there's a lot of work to get there <laughs> you, you can't just do that like overnight you've got to actually have an application that's amenable to it so so that that said, so when you were introducing this stuff, like what, how did, what was like the the plan for it? Like, did it take like, like six months and five people, and did you actually have to like go fight for stuff? And how did you figure out like what to do it with? Like, how do you, like, if someone was in your position, 
like except I don't know a year ago or whatever, right? Like how should they plan out introducing a pipeline in into their uh, their organization? Yeah, so I think we started about two years ago, and it was um, when Concourse was really new. Uh, but we were pretty comfortable with Bosch. And so we felt like because Concourse had formal Bosch abstraction and because we were pretty convinced that Pivotal was also going to be trying to uh, use Concourse to automate Cloud Foundry deployments, that it was probably the right tool for us to, to try and use despite its newness. Um, and we just tried to spike out, we basically tried to spike out a couple small tests um, of doing some pieces of the pipeline, not doing necessarily the whole thing, and basically convinced ourselves that um, there was enough substance there for us to feel comfortable that um, we could eventually get to uh, an end-to-end -end deployment model. Um, and so for us, <clears throat> um, a lot of it was about starting small and then slowly making it more complex. Um, so we started small, we tested a small piece, we got it working, uh, and then we built one giant pipeline to kind of rule them all, um, which became a mess uh, for a variety of reasons. Like if the pipeline fails, then when you need to run it again, you have to start over, which um, if your pipeline takes a very long time to run can be a bad thing. Yeah. These are the types of things you don't really think about prior to automating the pipeline. So if you were doing it manually, you would just look at what failed and you would logically resume wherever made sense to resume. Um, when you're dealing with this in the pipeline, you need to understand um, that and break that up uh, in somewhat logical segments. Uh, and so that as we evolved, we started to think about things like, okay, which pieces can run at the same time? Which pieces can't run at the same time? Where do we need to ensure order? If this fails, what does it mean for what other different pieces need to rerun or rerun in different ways? Um, and so over time, just like with any piece of software, that pipeline uh, kind of grew a life of its own um, and became much smaller and much more modular uh, components uh, that were t stitched together. Um, and so as far as advice for where to start, um, one thing I would say is like don't spend too much time on the tool because I think the process matters more than the tool. Mm. Um, I do think tools like uh, Travis and tools like um, Concourse are great in that it's really easy to codify your pipelines. I mean, if we believe that configs should be coded and um, our infrastructure deployments should be codified and, and version controlled, then like, why wouldn't our pipelines be codified and version controlled? Um, Jenkins also has something now called the Jenkins file, which allows you to codify your pipelines, um, and they're written in Groovy. Um, so again, like I would say, codifying the pipeline uh, is probably important, but beyond that, tool selection, they kind of all do mostly the same uh, thing. Um, obviously, like different people like different UIs, um, if you're working heavily with Bosch, some of the pivotal abstractions are really nice. The resources for PivNet to pull down updates is really nice. Um, so there may be small features that push you one direction or the other, but 
don't spend three months trying to figure out which pipeline tool to use. Yeah. Um, pick yeah. one and go like test something out. Right. Yeah. You know, I like, I'm, I'm not that much of an expert in this area, but I was, uh, I was, uh, I guess embarrassingly for being a pivotal person, finally figuring out how, what pipeline, what pipeline, what concourse does and how it works. And to your point, like my theory and, and adjoining to what you're saying about, uh, not getting too tool obsessed is most all of these tools, they basically are like orchestration and workflow, right? Like they don't have any magic. They just know how to execute a series of things and like tell you if it worked or not. And I mean, you know, I'm sure there's like branches of decisions and stuff or maybe not, but it's just like, I'm just going to execute all this stuff, but you have to bring your own brains, so to speak, right? Like, I don't, I don't know what you want to do. Yeah. I just know how to do this one build thing. Um, and so I would, I'd tell them if this is, if I'm wrong, but I would theorize that, the variation in tools is more about some subtle philosophy about how you uh, accomplish that task. And I should go back and like look at how Jenkins does this and some other things. But in looking through the concourse stuff, like it has, as I guess you would expect from a bunch of pivotal people working on it, like it has this very uh, almost 12 factory way of thinking where there's a lot of configuration injected. And there's a lot of like statelessness for all of the things, or there's a lot of like delegating. I don't know. You figure it out <laughs> to, right. to different parts of it. And the goal of that being, um, it's almost this counterintuitive thing I've noticed with like complicated systems is like, and you alluded to this is the less complicated things a core system is doing, the more resilient it'll be. And so, like, you kind of read through Concourse and, like, it kind of almost is refusing to do all this complicated stuff for you, which almost forces you to also not do complicated stuff, to keep the unit of work really small and to uh, not have very complicated build tasks that you would have and to break things into a series of small parts and, you know, not, like, have to depend on a bunch of state that you trace through things. And so, again, my theory would be, like, I suspect there's other build tools that have somewhat different like approaches to it. And so uh, I don't know if that theory is true. It's kind of like you're saying is like, you should figure out how you want to do your build regardless of the tool that you're using. And then kind of let that guide the the tool that you use to figure out how to, uh, how to build things. Yeah. I think the other, <clears throat> the other big differentiator is there seems to be kind of this lighter bar of how much of, how much of, things i guess are centrally managed versus how much of things are meant for independent teams so i would say like concourse is very much meant for completely autonomous independent team is going to build their pipeline in whatever way they see fit and like get it done um and they're kind of like in complete control of their destiny and then on the flip side of that i would say that jenkins um has this concept of jenkins plugins Many Jenkins plugins can be kind of centrally uh, configured and, and you may have certain steps that are uh, enforced globally. And so uh, you, you kind of have this more overarching, like when we talk about real governance, um, it allows groups of stakeholders that are external to the development team um, to participate more directly in that pipelining process. Mm. And so um, organizationally, uh, depending on the product or the project or, you know, what you're trying to do, one may make sense versus another. Um, we may see that those two worlds start to converge a little bit. Uh, I'm not sure where that'll go. I mean, I think that's where Travis CI uh, and Circle CI gained so much momentum was, you know, all these Ruby developers that basically just wanted to, like, push a button and their thing got deployed. Um, 
And they made that really, really easy. Um, so much so that you almost didn't even need to like make a pipeline. Like it would just do a lot of that work for you. Yeah. Based on knowing that certain things about how most people do deployments. Um, but was never really intended for um, kind of this more like enterprise-y uh, CI system. Um, although I know Travis has a CI, uh, enterprise CI offering now. I don't know exactly what the features and capabilities are, but you know, like the original value proposition that made it so popular was me as a small team or as a single dev can be very productive very quickly. Um, obviously like the things I need to do in terms of my pipeline change as the size of my organization grows, as the scale of what I'm trying to do grows, as more and more people see the power of the pipeline, they see it as an opportunity to kind of latch in their piece. And I think, um, you know, that's where there's opportunity for education. Yeah. I, I, you know, that surfaces another like general rule of, of software, which is like, uh, and I don't know, it's a little more nuanced than this, but it's like the more homogenous you are, the faster you can move. And they, it seems like there's two risks involved with being homogenous, right? Like, you know, for example, like if, if, if you're a Ruby developer and you don't really care or need to like have a lot of control over your pipeline, then this pipeline will be great. <laughs> you, you don't have to like do that right. much with it. And, you know, I, I think there's, there's kind of two risks with homogeny. Most people focus on this first one, which is like, I don't know, you'll have less capabilities or something, right? Like, like you'll be stuck in this one stack of doing things and, it, and either you can't add or the people who control it won't innovate enough capabilities into it, which I, I think is a lot less of a concern. It's not, it's not, it's not a concern that's unique to having a homogenous stack, right? Like you could have a, a very heterogeneous mixed stack and for some reason not be able to get new innovative capabilities in it. Like that, that it's, it's a uh, it's a risk you have with any stack, but it seems like the uh, the second one, and this is what makes characterizes things as enterprise, is like, uh, well, we got a lot of stuff, <laughs> right? Like, like we can't just say that we're going to do something in one way, or we're only going to accept this thing. And and you were talking about that earlier, where one of the um, um, one of the governance or auditability things that seems great about a pipeline is like. What if we could take this all this pile of logs and stuff and actually like do something with it <laughs> and like essentially right. show that we're doing this process over and over again and you know I would imagine in a shop like yours and many other organizations like you've always had the potential if not having all those files and piles of things and all of that work to actually like normalize them and stick them into some report is a huge amount of the actual work to be done and so it's not like your CI tool is necessarily going to like do all that integration for you, but at least the approach, you know, in doing the process of, of putting a pipeline in place, that's a huge amount of the work that you'll need to do. And so like you need something that can handle that heterogeneity, if you will, of, of pulling all of that together, which um, I mean, that seems like that would be another piece of advice to give people uh, that's implicit in what you're saying is like, installing the tool is going to be like the least of your worries, right? Like it's actually all the customization work and things that you're going to be doing where uh, you're going to fail or succeed at getting a pipeline in place and where much of the work is going to need to be like once it, like going back to the phrase you're using programmable or, or, you know, infrastructure as code is like, it's that code part that's going to be difficult to, to do. Yeah. I think like, it's funny. 
uh, like kind of boiling it down is like, is it red or is it green is one of the hardest problems to solve. <laughs> right, right. Because it's like, it, like, it, did it do the thing it was supposed to do okay, or did it not do the thing it was supposed to do? Um, and so, like, uh, you know, in, in Unix command line processes where I have, like, exit codes, and those can be helpful um, when you have, like, JSON output coming out of APIs, then in many cases, um, you'll get, like, an HTTP error code that maybe indicates that there was a problem, or you'll get something in the payload coming back that says, hey, there was a problem. Those things can be easier when you're when you're dealing, you know, when, <laughs> when you run into challenges, when you're dealing with tools that seem like they do those things, but actually don't conform to, like, the way you would expect them to work. And so, like, something is a CLI, and it gives you an error code of zero, which typically means success, but it throws an error message into standard output that says this did not work. It's like, wait, how do I deal with that? That's kind of annoying. Um, and those things are all over the place, especially as you try and incorporate tools um, that are older, like uh, our collections of tools that have been sitting around. Um, and, the, and that's where, where it becomes hairy. And, and what's interesting um, just from a kind of a sociological perspective is people people's identities are like married to tool sets. And so mm. when you go to them and say, hey, like I'd really like you to change your tool set because this thing is really hard to automate, it becomes like this, uh, this war of the tools that's like, uh, no, like we're not going to use your new cool thing just because it's cool or like, hey, I just re-upped the license on this so we can't possibly do uh, what you're asking. And you had to kind of find ways um, to navigate those waters and navigate those conversations and say, hey, could we run two tools at once? Could we run this tool for this use, this other tool for this other use case? Or find ways to wrap it or work with the vendor. Maybe they have something that experimental as they're seeing the need. Um, who knows? But uh, I think those are kind of the big challenges, especially when you're dealing with the external stakeholders who have pieces in your process. Um, that you would typically need to submit a ticket into their queue and then they do some work and then they come back to you telling you uh, with it, whether it's red or green. Uh, obviously, that can't really be a part of your pipeline. Like, I suppose you could have a pipeline that submits a service now ticket and then waits for somebody to like click a button. But, um, I, you know, getting people to buy in when they haven't kind of experienced uh, the power and versatility uh, and benefit of this automated, um, you know, codified version controlled world uh, is is a tough sell. Um, it's hard to talk somebody into it. You really uh, almost have to show them or bring them along or, you know, do something yourself and then compare it. I, I think it's different for every organization and for the different personalities you're dealing with. But um, it's definitely that's that as as you said it earlier, people and culture is always is the problem. I think that's the theme of this podcast in general. Actually, <laughs> yeah. Well, it, I I think I think from uh, the beginning of computer history, it's always been about the uh, the human computer interaction and how those two things work together, right? Like that's the uh, that's that's I guess until the computers take over, we're always going to account for how the, how they work together with us humans, 
That's that's the that's the issue. Like, uh, like, yeah. Anyways, I was gonna. I was. I, I I have this ongoing discussion with my son about computers, and like, they only do you. They only do what you ask them to do. <laughs> like, and they're very they're very reliable at doing that. And so you have to make sure to ask them to do the right thing, because because they'll just do the wrong thing if you ask it. Uh, but you know, to that end, I mean, so the last the last area here, I, I, I was curious to get your thoughts on is like the. I don't know what you would call it, the sort of staffing and organizational thing when it comes to your pipeline and, and to float out another theory, like, and this is all just based on kind of like, uh, I don't know, intuiting kind of in a theoretic way, like, tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the goal of a pipeline would be to have, would basically be to like standardize, if not centralize on how you do your pipeline stuff, like, I would assume that the more variation you have in pipelines, like the worse it is and the more you're harming yourself versus like, maybe not like using this phrase metaphorically, maybe you don't physically have only one pipeline. I mean, that would make a lot of sense, but you have like, we have one thing that we used for pipelines and one set of ways of doing it so that we don't have like five different ways of doing your pipeline in this organization. But I don't know, like what, what's what's your advice on like how much you centralize and standardize versus not um i mean my view is you centralize as much as it can make sense um i think you know having every team have their own instance of jira is probably not the answer like that that's a thing that definitely happens in organizations like oh i don't like or sorry i said jira i meant jenkins um i don't like that you added these five Jenkins plugins or like I want this one and the Jenkins team won't add it. So I'm standing up my own Jenkins. I think um, that's where you can get into trouble and you have to find a way to treat CI and the management of CI um, as a service, because at the end of the day, you will have a team who's responsible for managing that, whether it's um, like your enterprise tool teams or whether you have like a release management team that's maybe in charge of that. Um, and, and they really need to treat uh, the developers like customers and take their feedback and input and think about bringing in plugins and think about um, isolation of the pipelines. And uh, there's a variety of controls that are in place that you can use. But um, I don't believe that the answer is having lots and lots of installations of Jenkins that all have different permissions and all have different um, organizational setups and everything else. That's a lot of overhead to incur over and over and over again when you can uh, incur it a minimal amount of times. um, If you think a little bit about how you want this thing to be used uh, going forward. So I would say um, standardize as much as as possible. Um, And the other thing is uh, it not only is inclusive of the pipeline tool itself. So, you know, I don't want to run every pipelining tool under the planet. I also don't want to run every version control tool under the planet either. So if I'm standardized on on GitHub, um, which is where the world seems to be going, or some version of Git uh, that's running in the enterprise, or um, if I'm running on like some version, uh, which is a little bit older, but there's lots of... Um, you know, there's a need for standardization and consolidation uh, in the tool sets in general. So not just in the pipeline, but in the, all of the things that the pipeline talks to. Yeah. Um, and there's this need for making sure that 
communication and codifying inputs and outputs is a critical part of selection criteria going forward. Because if as an organization you're moving towards, you know, like continuously delivered organization or, or being a software company, which is, um, uh, you know, almost cliche at this point, but um, everybody's trying to be a software company and software company wants uh, these processes that are part of continuous integration delivery to be able to be fully automated. And so if you have silos of teams who are not bought into this process, there needs to be a lot of education, a lot of work to help them see the value uh, to the business in, in getting pipelines and automation out there um, so, that, so that that criteria becomes part of the, especially with vended or even open source tools, part of that process. Like the tool itself needs to be open in the sense that I can build automation uh, on top of it or around it um, to digest uh, outputs and to submit inputs, which means I probably need really good APIs um, and I need outputs that can be codified. Yeah, that's a good like like emerging, uh, well, not emerging, but but a new sort of, uh, I don't know, criteria for tool selection. I mean, just to restate what you're saying is uh, no matter how awesome tech, some technology you want to use is, for it to be a sustainable awesomeness, it needs to be like automatable, <laughs> at least with respect to being built, right? And so just like you're saying, therefore, it needs to have like some APIs and these characteristics to it. So that's a good, uh, it, it's it's always good, if not tragic, to have a way of filtering out stuff you can use. <laughs> but but that way it won't uh, become a boat anchor in the uh, in the future. So, so, so then the last, the last point on that, like, so do you, do you think, do you think it's good to plan for, because you end up with like a team of people who maintain the, uh, the pipeline code or like, what do you, like, I don't know, do you need like three or five people who only work on that for the whole organization or how do you sort of like staff all of that stuff? Yeah. So I think when you have, if you're married to codifying your pipelines, which I highly recommend, um, Again, the Jenkins file is fairly new, but it's out now, and it's been out for about a year, I think. So there's really no excuse at this point. Um, all of the major CI systems allow you to codify pipelines. There's no reason that you can't kind of have the reference pipeline repository for the different patterns within your organization. Um, and I would recommend building those patterns. I mean, at the end of the day, you want the teams to be able uh, to be as autonomous and as possible, uh, but you want doing the right thing to be the easy thing. Um, and there will be certain areas where you kind of don't want allow the, to allow them to deviate. That's where things like Jenkins plugins can make a lot of sense. So I think understanding um, those three pieces is where do I need standardization? Where do I need centralization? Um, and where do I need autonomy will help uh, drive out kind of what that needs to look like in terms of uh, CI as a platform offering. Mm. Uh, that makes sense. All right. Well, but, what do you got? You got any other uh, brain dumpings you want to do on the pipeline topic before we wrap up? No, I mean, I think, again, like it's um, very similar to what we're seeing with Agile in general, which is you really want to enable the teams to be as self-serving, as autonomous as possible. So if you end up with a central CI team that builds everyone's pipelines for them. One is you're preventing um, your software organization from learning how to build code that's easily automatable. Uh, so that's bad. And 
then uh, two, you'll end up with like all of this critical deployment knowledge sitting in this one siloed team, uh, slowed down feedback loops, um, as well as uh, kind of introducing this friction. So the goal should be to kind of distribute out into the individual teams as much of uh, the capabilities are possible, um, but where you need centralization, be thoughtful about it um, and, and make sure it's well planned. Yeah, it's a good application of, uh, I think I think last time we were talking, something you were saying is, uh, you know, I like to push down decision making, <laughs> right? Like, right. like, why don't you decide that? Which which I think is is part of the overall philosophy of, I don't know, like how, how I see a lot of all the way from up to high level architecture, you know, like with microservices to uh, to build stuff to even how like, various platforms run is uh it's that old lean principle of like push the decision making as close to the actual line as possible right like wherever as close to the production of the thing you're doing if you can make if you can have them do the decision it's probably going to be better than it than if you centralize it which i think right. uh, i mean that goes back to what we were talking about earlier where uh when you look at what most pipeline tools do they just orchestrate you doing something. <laughs> so so they provide a skeleton that you wrap all your own meat and everything around, which uh, makes a lot of sense. Well, great. Well, uh, Absolutely. There, there's there's another nice uh, topic that we have. Uh, I don't know. I, I think that's it for this time. So I guess, yeah. uh, I guess bye-bye. Sounds good. Uh, it was a pleasure. And uh, automate, automate all of the pipelines. Yeah. We'll see everyone next time.